Well, we'll continue to walk through uh, the book of Ephesians. And Paul, as you know, in this, uh, the first half of Ephesians gave us this strong gospel foundation, the truths of Christ and his grace upon which we base our lives. And then in the second half, chapters 4 through 6, he is continuing to exhort Christians in how to live, right? It's filled with instructions for life in the gospel. The gospel that we believe and profess and proclaim shapes our lives and our communities in these particular ways. He's gone to great lengths uh, in displaying what the risen life of those united to Christ will look like in the community of God's people and how distinct from the world the lifestyle of Christian people should appear. We are not to live as the Gentiles do, that is, as those who do not believe in the gospel and do not follow Christ and his word. We are to live differently, distinctly, Christianly in the midst of this wicked time. And now he turns his attention toward Christian households. So he's talked about life in the church generally and, and the new self, the new man that we uh, are to put on in Christ. And now he turns his attention to, to Christian homes um, in what is, what's often referred to in similar letters as household codes. Right? This is the way that you're to order your, your homes and households and sort of private lives, as it were, uh, in light of what you believe. And so he begins addressing subgroups of Christians within the broader context of the church. So to this point, throughout from the beginning of chapter 4 to the middle of chapter 5, he's really been addressing the whole church about our life together. Now he begins to address subgroups and gets more specific, more particular with his instructions. And so in the remainder of chapter 5 and the first half of chapter 6, he will address in turn wives and husbands, chapter 5 verses 22 through 33. Children and their parents, and actually especially their fathers, there's an emphasis there in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and then slaves and their masters in the middle of chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Before, and he, does, he goes through these sort of household codes, these orders of Christian uh, homes, before concluding the letter with a sober reminder to the entire church about the powerful spiritual enemy that they face. And the importance of being equipped for battle with the full armor of God. And so that passage is coming again in just a few weeks. Now it is surely a mark of God's wisdom and kindness that his word includes instructions on the particular structures and relationships in our lives. The Bible doesn't just give us information about, say, the most spiritual 10% of our lives and then leave us to sort of figure out the rest of it on our own. The Holy Spirit has provided for us profound teaching and rich instruction concerning some of the nitty-gritty details of our lives. And these exhortations in chapter 5 to wives and husbands concerning the gospel's relationship to their marriage are a good gift of Christ to his people. We do well to pay attention. So here's the structure of these verses, verses 22 through 33. Here's the structure. He, he, He begins with instructions to wives in verses 22 through 24. Then he gives some instructions to husbands in verses 25 through 30. 
Then in verses 31 and 32, he provides a, uh, he, he requotes or he quotes the sort of institution of marriage from Genesis and gives a, a sort of foundational gospel principle about marriage. We'll unpack this. And then finally, he restates the instructions in verse 33 that he had given to wives and husbands, just re, uh, restates them uh, one more time. So that's the, the structure of this passage. Let's, let's read it now. I'll read for you verses 22 through 33, down to the end of, of chapter 5, uh, and then we'll unpack these verses together. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here's the big idea that we get from this passage, which may be the fullest and sort of richest explanation of the nature and purpose of marriage, as well as these kind of relational distinctions within it. Here's the big idea. Marriage is about the gospel. Marriage is about the gospel. It's not primarily about human happiness and flourishing It is for those things. There can be great joy and delight and happiness in the companionship of marriage. There can be, uh, and God intends there to be, a flourishing of human society and culture and church communities because of the, the relationship of marriage. But those are not the main purposes. It's not mainly about human happiness. It's not mainly about human flourishing. It's mainly about the gospel. Before it's about anything else, it is about Christ and his love for his church. The passage basically answers the question, how does marriage reflect the gospel? If that's the truth that he gives us very plainly, you see down there in verse 32, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is Paul's commentary on the existence of marriage. It's about Christ and the church. It's about the gospel. So obviously we want to know how. How is it about the gospel? How does marriage reflect the gospel of Christ? And the passage gives us three answers. I'll give you those answers in short, and then we'll unfold them each in turn. The marriage reflects the gospel by, number one, a wife's respectful submission. 
Secondly, it reflects the gospel by a husband's generous love. And then thirdly, it reflects the gospel by the one flesh union of marriage. So how the first way then that that marriage, the relationship of marriage, the nature of marriage and the practice of marriage reflect the gospel is by a wife's respectful submission. This is where he begins in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So if I were to encapsulate this in a sentence, it'd be this. The way a wife submits to the authority of her husband paints a picture of the church's respectful, trusting obedience to the Lord. The way a wife submits to her husband's authority paints a picture of the church's respectful, trusting obedience to the Lord. This is how what he unfolds for us here in these verses. We've got to talk about the, the verb here, the verb submit in verse 22. In our English uh, translations, particularly the ESV says this, and I think just about every other English translation does about the same here. A new sentence starts here. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands. But in the original Greek, the sentence doesn't start here. And in fact, the word submit is not in this verse. It's borrowed from verse 21 because the sentence is continuing. It's been one long sentence that began back in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. That's, that's the overarching uh, command, the verbal instruction that all of these things fall under. And that sentence is sort of continuing with clause after clause, as Paul is uh, prone to do in, in his writings. And so uh, back in verse 21, as he was speaking to, again to all the church about living carefully and about particularly being filled with the spirit of God and what that might look like. In verse 21, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another. That is, among the people of God within the body of Christ, there is a mutual submission that goes on as we sort of yield our lives to each other and we welcome the correction and the accountability and the encouragement and the authority of other Christians within the church into our own lives. And so there's a a whole church mutual submission going on in verse 21. And then he starts to get specific with these subgroups beginning in verse 22. And so it would really be something like this, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands. Right? So he's continuing the idea of the mutual submission in the varying relationships within the church and now applies it to wives. And again, he'll go on to address children and parents and then slaves and masters. And in each of those three instances, he addresses first the the party in those particular relationships that are under authority by God's design. Wives, children, slaves. And so a couple of observations here. Uh, to make about the fact that, that submit is, uh, is supplied by verse 21 and, or borrowed from verse 21. Uh, the, the first one is that 
Again, if we see this as sort of an umbrella statement, this mutual submission is an umbrella of, uh, of the particular relationships that are to come, to be addressed in this section, um, then we, prob- we begin to see uh, that, that the, he's addressing several distinct groups of people who are called upon to submit to their counterparts. So, for example, uh, egalitarian readers, those who think there ought to be no distinction whatsoever between male and female, husband and wife, the relationship is totally even and egalitarian in every sense. Egalitarian readers like to apply the ideal of mutual submission that you see in verse 21 uh, and apply it specifically to the marriage relationship, insisting that husbands and their wives are each called to submit to each other equally. And there is no distinction in terms of an order or uh, any principle of authority and submission is, they would say, is a misreading uh, of the text. But the context uh, of this verse doesn't call for such a forcing of verse 21 uh, onto the roles of wives and husbands uh, equally. Right? He says we're submitting to one another in the body of Christ, including wives submitting to their husbands. But then, of course, when he gets to husbands, he doesn't repeat submitting. He doesn't borrow that same idea, and he gives them a very different uh, instruction. And so it, the, the context here doesn't call for taking this mutual submission idea from verse 21 and cramming it onto uh, the relationships within marriage. And in fact, the outcome of forcing it onto the relationships in marriage is a teaching that is oddly out of sync with the rest of the New Testament, indeed even Paul's own teachings in other books concerning marriage. In Colossians 3.18, he gives very similar, almost identical instructions. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, and husbands, love your wives, and don't be harsh with them. That's what he says in Colossians 3.18, 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, 1 Peter, that's obviously not by Paul, that's by Peter, but in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says very much the same thing. It begins with wives, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then his instruction to husbands is wives, uh, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing them honor, right? And so it probably means something more like this. Order your relationships after God's design as it pertains to authority and submission in their unique expressions. So we don't want to get to take this mutual submission idea from verse 21 and force it onto every unique relationship. We need to see what he is calling us to here. And the second thing I want to point out, noting that submit is borrowed from the verses that came before it, is that all of these instructions, both to wives and to husbands, are part of the same long sentence where he spoke of being filled with the Spirit. Right? In fact, that's the most recent thing that he had spoken of, is that we should not be drunk with wine that is under the influence, under the control of a substance like wine, but we should be filled with the Spirit. And as we're filled with the Spirit, we'll be addressing one another in psalms and hymns, and we'll be giving thanks, and we'll be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and wives will be submitting to their husbands, right? So it's one cohesive thought. So we should see the husband and wife roles delineated, delineated in verses 22 to 33 as only possible when both spouses are filled with the Spirit and walking by His power unspiritual people, unspiritual marriages will not be able to live this out in a full way. Which is not to say there's not good in even unchristian marriages. 
But it takes the Spirit of God in his people for these counter-cultural and really counter-natural commands to be carried out. So let's talk about uh, the nature of submission. There's two explanations uh, or descriptions about the submission that wives are to give to their husbands. The first thing he tells us is about the manner of submission, and it is as to the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. A wife's submission to her husband is an act of devotion to God. And remember, the mutual submission happening throughout the church in verse 21 is out of reverence for Christ. And so in the same way, a wife should submit to her husband as to the Lord. It is an act of devotion to God. She places herself in God's capable hands by yielding to his design for her husband to take the lead in their home. So submitting to your husband as to the Lord is an act of trust and worship of God. I will follow the leadership of the one to whom you have united me by covenant. And then he talks to us about the the relationship, particularly between Christ and the church, right? As the church, verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The church's deference to Christ as its head, as its leader, as its authority, provides an analogy of sorts for a wife's submission to her husband. It doesn't mean stop being an individual and mindlessly fulfill all your husband's wishes. That's not what marriage is about. That's not what the headship of the husband is for. That's not what the submission that they're called to. It it means something like this. Respect him. Follow him. And help him. Remember that the, the creation of Eve has that language in it in Genesis 2.18. That God would make a helper suitable for him. So help him. Support him. So how should a wife submit to her husband? As to the Lord. As the church regards Christ as its authority, as its leader, so a wife should regard her husband. And then he gives a reason, namely, that the husband, by God's design, is the head, is the, the one with, uh, that's, that's given this role of authority by God within the home. Her husband is her head. Look at verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body is himself its savior. Head connotes authority. In Ephesians 1, verse 22, Paul spoke of Jesus as the head of the church. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. That's about the authority of Christ. That's about the place of authority that Christ holds over his church and indeed within the universe as he puts all things under his feet. Again, in chapter 4, verse 15, he said, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body 
grows together, right? So the head, again, is the one with authority over the rest of the body. So when, when Paul uses the word head here or headship, he is referring to a position, a role of God-conferred authority. And that's what he means when he says, just as Christ is head of the church, so a husband is head of his wife. By virtue of her husband's headship, conferred by God in the marriage covenant, a wife is called to willingly yield to his authority in her life. Now, that's not a popular view in our time. That's hotly contested even among Christians. There are many Christians who don't agree and to work pretty hard to try to show that the Bible actually calls us to something different than this. I think that those attempts fail. I don't have time to go through all the reasons that I think that fails in this message. But, but it's not popular. It's counter-cultural, and it goes against the nature of people as wanting to be self-determining, self-deifying, uh, self-defining people, right? We want to call our own shots. We want to go our own way. Right, And so it, it flies against that, that, that idea. But I think if we, as we continue, you can't talk about the submission of, of a wife without reference to what the husband is called to and the kind of leadership he is called uh, to uh, convey. And so w- without that context, it, it, it doesn't make sense by itself. But before we get there, uh, th- this submission... To give us a better idea, again, of what, of what it means, this submission, this yielding to a husband's leadership is summarized in verse 33 with the word respect. So when he concludes this section by sort of repeating or restating uh, the instructions of verse 33, he says, let each one of you, still addressing husbands at that point, love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's, that's the idea that, that carries the nature of, of submission in a marriage. A wife is to show respect to her husband. See that she recognizes his God-given role of authority and willingly plays her God-given role as a helper to him in fulfilling the call of God. So the first way that marriage reflects the gospel is by way of a wife's respectful submission. And as I said, it's hard to get a sense of what a wife's respectful submission looks like or what you're being called to submit to without reference to the nature and shape of a husband's authority. So now we'll turn our attention to verses 25 through 30, where Paul fleshes out for us what shape the God-ordained headship of a husband is supposed to take in a Christian marriage. So the second way that marriage reflects the gospel is by a husband's generous love. By a husband's generous love. Husbands, love your wives. It's noteworthy, perhaps, that the husband gets a few more verses than the wives do. There's perhaps a greater responsibility reflected there upon the husband, who if he has been given uh, God-ordained authority... And the wife is called to submit to his headship, to his leadership. Then the husband has a little bit more to listen to, has a little bit fuller commands to follow. So here's the way I would summarize this in a sentence. The way a husband loves and nurtures his wife 
paints a picture of Christ's self-giving love for his people. The way a husband loves and nurtures his wife paints a picture of Christ's self-giving love for his people. Now, there's a brilliance in Paul's command here, I think. In both what he does say and what he doesn't say, he displays wisdom and insight into a man's sinful nature. And I mean uniquely a man there, a male human being. Men have perhaps particular kinds of sinful inclinations. And I think Paul, being a man, is familiar with them. And of course, he's also guided by and inspired by the Holy Spirit as he writes these words. But the command he gives and the various kinds of commands he could give and doesn't are also instructive here. So consider this. One man's sinful inclination may be toward sternness toward sort of domineering. His tendency would be, in a marriage, would be to control his wife, uh, to manipulate her, to, to be her boss, right? To kind of keep her in her place under his thumb, so to speak. So if Paul had said, for example, husbands, manage your wives, if that had been his command here, well, this control freak husband might be inclined to overstep his bounds and to dominate his wife. Well, look, I've got biblical authority right here to tell you what to do. You've got to do what I say. It's my way or the highway. And certainly we've seen and heard of marriages that have that kind of a, a, a flavor to them. That's not what Paul says. He doesn't say manage your wives. Another man's sinful inclination may be toward sort of passivity or weakness, shyness even. Not that shyness is sinful, but there, there's a, a, a point of just sort of not being willing to step out, not being willing to uh, make choices. And so his tendency might be to, to soft step issues in the home, uh, to, to let his wife make all the plans, to just sort of float along through life, right? So if Paul had said, husbands, accommodate your wives, Right? If he had said, accommodate your wives, then this peacekeeper husband would probably be more inclined to underfunction and to let his wife do all the hard work for the family and just kind of stay out of the way, right? Sure, honey, whatever you want. Just, I'm just along for the ride, right? And there's plenty of sort of office, you know, water cooler jokes about calling your wife the boss and things like that. That's where this comes from. It comes from that inclination a sinful inclination on the part of some men to just coast, to not take responsibility. And if I've got a wife with a strong personality and strong desires and strong plans, I'll just defer to her and everything, and we'll just do whatever she wants to do. And neither of these is God's design for a husband. God doesn't want control freak husbands, and he doesn't want doormat husbands. He wants husbands who will lead their wives and families. The command that Paul gives is simply this. Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. How interesting that is. It, it, it uniquely applies to each of these sort of inclinations in different ways. If I'm a control freak kind of guy, then the command to love my wife is going to call me maybe to, to soften. It's going to cause me to pay a little more attention to be a little less assertive, right? If I'm a doormat, milk toast, passive kind of a guy, 
then the command to love my wife might actually call me up. It might call me to, maybe I should give a little more. Maybe I should be a little bit more uh, attentive, maybe a little more assertive than, I, than I've been. So what does it look like for a husband to love his wife? That's, that's what it comes down to, and that's what Paul spends a good portion of this paragraph describing. What does it look like for a husband to love his wife? And if the wife has been called to submit to his authority, and the husband has been commanded to love his wife, we have to, we have to understand, what does that love mean? What does that love look like? What is it that the wife is called to follow, to yield to? The, the simplest answer clearly supplied by the text, is Jesus. It looks like Jesus, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Okay, so Jesus is the model of love, the example of love, so you should love your wives just like Jesus. That's true. But we're going to go deeper. Paul goes deeper. Let's break this down a little bit more. Here are some characteristics that I see in these verses, three characteristics about what a husband's love for his wife should look like based on what I see in these verses. Three characteristics of a husband's love for his wife. Number one, love sacrifices. Love sacrifices. That's the very first thing Paul talks about. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What do you mean gave himself up? He died. He gave his very life for the good of his church, for the salvation of his people. Love sacrifices. Christ-like love means sacrifice. It means at my expense for your benefit. It means laying down a plan, an expectation, a desire, because it's good for her. It means prioritizing her needs above your own. Husbands, how are you doing? Making sacrifices for the benefit of your wife. This is what we're called to do. Love sacrifices. Second characteristic I see, love cultivates. Love cultivates. Now, I get that from especially verse 26 where the very next phrase is that he, so he gave himself up for her. So that, right, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. And then down in verse 28, he says, uh, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so he speaks of how a a man cares for his own flesh, right? You feed yourself and you get sleep and like you take care of your body because that's what love looks like in a sense, right? Love cultivates that is it's interested in what the the wife is becoming a husband is interested in what his wife is becoming christ like love means taking a keen interest in the spiritual emotional relational even physical health of your wife it means desiring to see her relationship with god grow her fulfilling of her roles and relationships flourish And her character blossom into full flower. A a husband who loves his wife cultivates, intentionally cultivates his wife's character and seeks his wife's good. That she might grow and become all she is designed by God to be. So far from looking out for number one, 
right? A husband having his own best interests in mind all the time and the wife better just get on board with it. No, no. A Christ-like husband is looking out for the interests of his wife. And by extension of his, of his family, if he's a man with, uh, with children in the home as well, it extends to them too. There's this headship, this leadership that cultivates character and seeks the good of those under his care. Love sacrifices, love cultivates. And the third one I see is love initiates. Love initiates. You don't see this one quite as explicitly in the text, but it's implied, I think, by all of the acts of Jesus that are described here. We didn't call on Jesus to do these things for us, right? Hey, Jesus, will you come and, uh, and, and save us and, and sanctify us and cleanse us and, and present us to yourself spotless? We didn't ask him to do that. In fact, uh, we couldn't have asked him to do anything because we were spiritual corpses. And his love came to us and pulled us out of our graves, he took the first step toward us. 1 John four nineteen assures us we love because he first loved us. That's the only reason we could possibly love at all is because he came to us in love. He initiated our relationship with him. That's what Advent and Christmas really is all about. It's God's initiative in sending his son to accomplish what we couldn't accomplish for ourselves. In the gospel, Christ initiated our Relationship and our salvation. And so, in the context of a marriage and a husband's Christ like love toward his wife, Christ like love means intentionally pursuing your wife, purposefully moving toward her with these cultivating and sacrificing expressions of care. It means your wife shouldn't be the only one making plans for the family. Or suggesting that you spend meaningful time together. Or trying to keep the house in order. Right? That's, that's an easy pitfall. Right? Uh, and if you've got a wife who likes to plan and who likes things in order and likes to spend meaningful time, you can be reasonably lazy and trust that those things are still going to happen because she's going to take care of it. But that's not what he calls us to. That's not what he calls husbands to do. He calls husbands to take the lead, take the initiative in caring for your wife, cultivating her character, in building into your relationship, and in glorifying God together. Husbands, how are you doing at initiating health in your wife and in your relationship? How are you demonstrating that her heart and your marriage are important priorities in your life? And that you take your calling as her husband seriously. So our big idea has been that marriage is about the gospel. And we've seen two expressions of that truth so far. Two ways that marriage reflects the gospel. Number one, by a wife's respectful submission. Just as, a, just as the church follows the leadership of Christ. And two, by a husband's generous love, just as Christ sacrificed himself for her good and for her redemption and her flourishing, a husband gives of himself intentionally, sacrificially cultivating her. And in verses 31 and 32, we see the third way that marriage reflects the gospel. And it's this, it's by the one flesh union of marriage, by the one flesh union. Of marriage. So the first two points, the first two ways that marriage reflects the gospel really are about the performance of marriage. 
if that makes sense. It's the, it's the carrying out of, uh, of the, the relational roles in a marriage. It's how a wife lives in relation to her husband's authority. It's how a husband lives in relation to his command to, to love and, and sacrifice for and care for his wife. This third one is about the nature of marriage itself. It's about what was in God's mind when he instituted marriage. And here's how I would word this. The way a husband and wife are united as one flesh in marriage paints a picture of the church's union with Christ through faith. The way that a husband and wife are united as one flesh in marriage paints a picture of the church's union with Christ through faith. So you see there, verse 31, he quotes Genesis 2, 24, the institution of marriage, which, by the way, was before the fall. So everything was perfect at this point. People were innocent. Relationships were unbroken. And God instituted marriage with these words. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Those are the instituting words of marriage. Now, the one flesh union of marriage is often said to refer to their sexual relationship. And it does. It does include that aspect of of marriage. But it encompasses much more than that. When a man and a woman get married, if you think about this for just a moment, they link their lives together in a profound and permanent way. The covenant of marriage is a till death do us part arrangement. Right? It's, it's intended to be as long as life uh, continues. And when they marry, when they covenant together, they link their lives together in a profound way. A husband no longer has goals only for himself or plans only for his own future, but goals and plans that necessarily include his wife. I can't envision my life 20 years from now and not see Lindsay there. Not if I'm going to be a faithful Christ-like husband, right? I have to have plans that accommodate her, that include her. It's got to be, it's got to work for both of us, not just me, right? A wife no longer envisions a future in the world on her own, dreaming of careers and, and whatever else, but lashes her hopes for the future to a husband to whom she will, or whom she will help and support, Her future and life and path is altered by this union with a husband. Money and physical possessions are no longer individual property. I've got my stuff over here. You've got your stuff over there. You don't ask me about how I spend mine. I won't ask you about how you spend yours. That's not the one flesh union of marriage. The union of marriage is now our physical possessions become shared resources, right? We, we, we make these, we do these things together. We make our choices together. We, what I spend affects you and what you spend affects me and vice versa. The interests and priorities of each spouse adapt and adjust to those of the other and become a new set of shared values and dreams. This is when a husband and a wife are united in marriage that they don't stop being individual people. But their lives are inextricably bound to one another by covenant. What's true of me is true of you. What's mine is yours. My future is your future. That is what is going on in this one flesh union 
of a husband and a wife. And we don't even have to think very hard about how all that relates to the gospel because Paul tells us plainly in verse 32. Now, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Thank you, Paul, for that clarity. So we don't have to go, you know, I wonder if there's a connection to be made here. He tells us real plainly, inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is about Jesus and the church. Wait a minute. When God instituted marriage in the Garden of Eden, thousands of years before Christ would ever come in Bethlehem as an infant and and have to live a sinless life and die on a cross and rise from the dead and all that, when God instituted marriage... It was intended to be a picture of Christ and his church. And only in the mind and wisdom and mystery of God's providence does that work. But that's exactly right. This mystery, this mystery of the one flesh union of husband and wife, this mystery of this relationship that to the, to, to, to the world really doesn't make sense. Why is he leading? Why is she submitting? Why is he sacrificing his own desires for her? Why, why is she so respectful of, of, of him? All of these realities are about Christ and his church and particularly this union. So in other words, the very marriage relationship itself, not only the particular roles and responsibilities of wives and husbands as they relate to each other and how they do at carrying those things out, but the heart of their covenant-based union with one another was designed by God from the beginning to point us toward Jesus Christ and the unique union that he enters with his people, the church. All those who repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ in faith are united to him in such a way that his righteousness becomes our righteousness. His father becomes our father. His future becomes our future. We're going to reign with him in his eternal kingdom. Why? Because we're united to Christ. He has, in his grace, connected us, linked us, united us to himself in such a way that what's his is ours. Jesus doesn't envision a future for himself without reference to his church. You look in the book of Revelation and the sort of end of all things, it ain't Jesus alone. It's Jesus and his people. His future is with his bride, the church. In the gospel, he has yoked himself to us in an unbreakable, eternal union that bestows on us a new identity, a new purpose, and a new eternal destination. Whether you're married or not, this is ultimate reality. Union with Christ is what it means to be a Christian. It's what it means to have eternal life. It means that we are connected to him by faith. If you're not, trust him. Repent of your sins. Call on him. Turn to him in faith and he will make what is his yours. Husbands and wives, how well does your marriage portray the gospel of Jesus Christ? If an unbeliever were to consider your relationship, would they find the gospel easier to understand or accept or harder? 
I think for all of us, whether we're married or not, or were married and aren't anymore, or hope to be married and aren't yet, or never plan to be married, I think for all of us, an understanding of how God designed his, his, his world, how he formed his church, and the way that he intends the, the unique relationships within the church and within the family of God to, to sort of propagate his gospel and, and, and human flourishing is an important reality. And so we all should consider, what does God want me to do in, in supporting his vision for life and for marriage and for, uh, for human flourishing within his community, within the world? May the Lord grant us grace to shape our understanding and our experience of marriage into the gospel-shaped reality that he's designed it to be. Let me pray.